These days, these weeks, we are preaching through the Gospel of Mark in our sermon series, and uh, we, our first scripture reading then is usually from the opposite testament, and we are reading out of the book of Ecclesiastes right now, and so Dina is going to come and read uh, this for us. It's written there in your bulletin. Dina, if you would. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my body, searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any of who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In Ecclesiastes 2, we find a man who's hit the summit. He has everything you could ever want. He's done the best things. He has the most money. He has the most accomplishments. He has the most of everything. And his conclusion at the end is, it's all just breath. It's a vanity. It blows away. And I think it's important because we are also a society, by and large, that chases after these things, accomplishments, wealth, um, pleasure. And what we need to realize is that w without Christ, without, without Christ first and foremost, if he's not keeping these desires, these things in check, we're, we're going to end up at the end of our lives like this man saying, uh, it's just vanity. We, we're, we're trying to grab wind with our hands. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are in the Gospel of Mark uh, for a sermon series up until the summer, and uh, the scripture reading today is from Mark 10. We are in sort of some events and teaching leading up to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But before we preach, uh, before I preach, uh, Stephen's going to come and read it for us. You can follow along uh, in Mark 10 on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Stephen. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, became, or they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, uh, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he called out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. We're at the point of the school year, at least in my house, when my children and I know exactly how many days of school remain. Uh, As of Friday, there are, I think, 33, if my math is correct, 33 school days until summer break. And as we eat breakfast and, you know, and make lunches and ensure that backpacks are fully stocked with all the necessities, we are reminded every day there are limited days remaining of this. 33 more lunches, 33 somewhat rushed breakfasts. See, when, when you are a child and summer break is on the horizon, your whole world is just shaded in by that fact. Should I wear shorts today? Every day is slightly warmer uh, than, than the one before. Summer is coming soon. Every weekend is a little foretaste. What will it be like when I don't have to get up and go to school? For Jesus in Mark 10, how children feel about summer break is just like a little, a little piece, a little, little picture of how Jesus is thinking about the coming days. As he reminds the disciples for a third time, he's going to arrive in Jerusalem, and when he gets there, all these things are going to happen. Arrest, trial, condemned to death, killed, and, and eventually rise. Because this looms so large in his mind, it colors in every other interaction he has. Conversations about the future are shaded in by it. Interactions with this man who's, uh, who has a physical disability, physically needy, they're shaded by it. And as readers, I think we have to understand what is going to happen next to understand what is happening now. Nothing about this chapter will make sense to you unless you understand the crucifixion is coming. Like summer break, where we are cued, uh, the crucifixion with the resurrection after it, it's coming soon, everything will change. So I want to cover this text in two parts. We're first going to talk about what the disciples want, this whole interaction about leadership and and everything else, and then we'll talk about what Bartimaeus wants. 
You may have noticed while Stephen was reading that Jesus asks both group the exact same question. He asks the disciples, then he asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? But their answers are different and striking. But we are in the middle of Mark. Jesus, as I said, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And if you look carefully, Mark actually notes Jesus is walking ahead of the disciples. It's a small detail, but Jesus is not being dragged to Jerusalem, not being pushed there. He's leading. He knows where this road leads better than anyone else. Betrayal, torture, death, but he does not shirk from the path. He's out in front walking. Everyone else is trailing him. Mark also tells us right there in 32, some are amazed, but others are afraid. And we're not told exactly why, but we can kind of surmise the reason. It's likely the disciples knew in some sense why they were headed to Jerusalem. Jesus keeps reminding them of what's going on. And it's likely those who are amazed, they are amazed by Jesus' courage. What kind of man leads the way on a path that he knows will end in in a painful death? But others are not amazed, they're afraid. They're wondering, am I going to be implicated? Am I going to be killed or hurt alongside Jesus? But somewhere along the way, Jesus pulls the 12 aside, and if you look at 33, he just reminds them of what we've been saying. He will be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spat upon, flogged, killed, and after three days rise. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been around church, you're like, it's kind of old news, (laughs) heard that before. I still think it's simply remarkable that Jesus knows all this in advance and goes to Jerusalem anyways. Add this to the pile of reasons that Jesus must be more than a man, because normal men, normal people, we don't act like that. We flee death. We fear death. We loathe unjust death. We mourn premature death. We marshal all of our medical resources to fight with death. And that's just not how Jesus does it. He knows he came to die. He knows, as verse 45 later reads, he is here not to be served, but to serve. He came not to bend the earth to his will, but to be bent by it. He knew he came for his life to be ransom. If you knew the day that you were going to die, imagine how that would change the few weeks that leading up to it. I mean, just let's do a little thought exercise. If you know you're going to be killed on Canada Day, I know, kind of, kind of morbid, but you're going to be killed on Canada Day of this year. Well, how would that change the next six, six odd weeks or so? Imagine the seriousness, the weightiness of all the conversations. Imagine the heaviness of your steps through each day. Imagine the sunsets or sunrises you might get up or stay up to see, how valuable and how sad they would be. Imagine all the meals you'd eat and with what reverence and slowness you'd want to eat and drink. And then imagine that right near the end of June, 28th, something like that, 27th, You get together with your dearest friends in the world, you have them over for dinner, and you remind them, hey, I'm gonna die, time's short. And they nod along very seriously and supportively. But then they say, hey, what are your plans for Christmas? Or or, what do you think the uh, outlook for the senators is next year? Or hey, are you gonna use your van? Could I have it, you know, when you're gone or something? Like such conversation, oh, that's terribly insulting. That'd be minimizing to the emotional and psychological distress. How can you ask such things at a time like this? That's what you'd want to say, I'm dying next week. And if you begin to get that feeling, that's the intrusive question of James and John kind of fits in that vein. Jesus has just said, I'm going to die. We're going to Jerusalem. We're a short walk away. I'm going to die there and be resurrected. And for some reason, the sons of Zebedee, these boys... They're like, this is the moment. It's like, this is not the moment. This is a bad moment. It's terrible timing. We don't know why they chose it. Maybe they thought, well, if he's going to die, we have to get our request in now or something. We're we're not sure. 
But first, they lead into their request with a vague petition. Hey, Jesus, say yes no matter what we ask next. Now, look, if you have a toddler, you know, <laughs> if, if, if they lead with that question, you are not going to want to say yes to whatever they say next. If you're a camp counselor, swimming instructor, teacher, if someone says, say yes no matter what I say next, you're like, not going to do that. It's not, it's not going to be something good. It's not going to be something you'd normally be allowed to do. But Jesus, very smart, very wise, he doesn't answer with an answer. He answers with a question. What do you want me to do for you? That's not a yes, by the way. He answers with a question and an open-ended question. I'm not sure it's what they expected, but they soldier ahead with their question. Verse 37, that what they tell Jesus, well, what we want is we want to sit at your right and left hand in your glory. Now, what's that request really for? Well, what they're asking for is a place of privilege and honor in the kingdom of God. They want to be at the head table. We want the power and prestige of being right, right there beside Jesus. Jesus has been teaching to the contrary for this for a long time now, but James and John are like, you're still going to have that earthly kingdom, right? And, and when, it, when it comes, we, we want to be on the inner circle of power, right? Now, we'll talk about the issues with this request in a moment, but Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Like, I hear the words coming out of your mouth, but you don't understand them. You are requesting close proximity to Jesus, but the way of Jesus is going to go in a different direction that you are not anticipating. James and John, you think proximity to Jesus will mean power, privilege, and wealth. What you will find out is that's not the way the kingdom of God works. But still, Jesus presses them. Okay, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with my baptism? They say, yep, no problem. We roll our eyes. But Jesus said, actually, you will. Actually, you are going to drink the cup. Actually, you will enter my baptism. But still, the seats of honor, Jesus says, are not his to hand out. But what the disciples, and specifically James and John here, what they do not understand is proximity to Jesus will involve not power, but pain. See, there is a cup that Jesus is going to drink, but it's not a royal cup. It's the cup of God's punishment against sin. There is going to be a baptism of Jesus, but it's going to be a baptism of floggings and beatings. There will be crowns, oh yes, but crowns of thorns, not gold. Robes will be involved, but robes of mockery and ridicule, not royal robes. And there will be an enthronement of Jesus. This is what they want. There will be an enthronement, right? But it's not going to be a gold chair on a raised dais. Jesus will be enthroned upon the cross. And there will be men to the left and right of Jesus. But not princes, not nobles. Thieves. Criminals. That's why Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking for. You're asking for a yellow brick road to glory and where it's, all this is going to end is in a dark and bloody Good Friday. And ironically, as Jesus hints here, they're gonna find this out years later. But right now they just don't get it. The disciples have this worldly view of power and authority. They're acting like the Gentiles. That's in, in verse 42, Jesus begins to teach them. He says, everyone in the world, when they get power, they use it for their own ends. They lord it over those that they rule. They exercise authority. They take the perks that power gives them. They bend the world to their own ends, but that is not the way of the cross. And Jesus says, in contrast to that view, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you serve. You want to be first? Okay. You voluntarily enslave yourself. That's the language he uses for the good of others. Now, why? 
Because Jesus says, that, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that, that's why I'm here. So once we've heard this, who wants to be with Jesus now? What do you want? That's a much more difficult question than it appeared to be. Because I think a lot of us enjoy the benefits of power. Now you might say, well, I'm not a cabinet minister for Justin Trudeau. I'm not a VP at Scotiabank. Okay. Whatever power, whatever position, whatever privilege you have, are you simply leveraging it for your own ends? And we're going to talk about politics in a minute, but the place this teaching first has to land must be in the church, because Jesus is instructing the disciples. These are the apostles. They will become the first pastors and leaders, elders of the Christian church. And he tells them, you can't act like the world in this matter. The way the world lives, the way the world treats power, that's not your model. Jesus is the model. So friends, whenever we find in the church a pastor or a leader pursuing prominence along with its perks, we find ourselves at odds with the teachings of Jesus. If we find pastors amassing houses or cars or expensive vacations, that, I think that's at odds with the way of Jesus. If you find a pastor or elder who refuses to do the menial work of a congregation or a church sometimes, they are not in step with Jesus. I think if we were trying hard to apply this command, then a pastor or leader in the church should figure out what is the least desirable job here, and maybe I should just sign up for that one on a regular basis. See, you want to be great. Okay, greatness is attached to service in the kingdom of God. You want to be number one. All right? Being first means going last. We have to get rid of the seats of prominence, get rid of lording it over, and maybe all of us who are pastors can first apply this teaching to ourselves before we go around insisting, well, what about you? And what about you? And what about society? And by the way, this is permission for you to call me or other elders, other leaders in our church out on this if you see us not acting in this way. Leadership is for service. But this passage is not only bound up to pastors and leaders only. Christians everywhere in all situations ought to consider the example of Jesus. Many of you consider yourselves complementarian. You believe husbands are the head of the home the way Christ is the head of the church. Great, I'm glad. That's a historic, reformed distinctive. You want to be close to Jesus? The way of leadership is service. You want to be at Christ's right hand. You want to be right there with him. Then look, give your life in service to your family. Stop ordering your wives around. Stop bossing your children around like a little king. If you hold to this doctrine, it must mean service. It must mean voluntarily going last. Many of you are bosses at your workplace. You have people that report to you, employees that you manage. Good for you. The Christian ethic extends to the workplace. How can you follow Christ as a boss? How can you serve those you lead? How can you give your life for the good of those that you work with? Some of you work in politics. Good. I'm glad you do. Politics, at its best, is the service of the public's good. There's power there. There's real power in politics, but it's supposed to be wielded for the benefit of those who don't have any power. Some of you want to be great in Canada. Well, you have to learn the way of, of Christ. You, you want to be first. You have to figure out how to go last. See, I think a lot of us, we have considered the work of Jesus on the cross as salvation for our souls. And look, that is the chief and greatest work. But the path of Jesus, the way of Jesus, is supposed to be normal for the way in which we make our way through the world. And I wonder if we have really considered all of its implications. John Foreman, who's a singer-songwriter guy, one of his solo albums, he wrote, he wrote this song called Learning How to Die. 
I've always liked it. It's a little bit morbid, but stay with me for a second. In the song, Foreman is, is talking with a friend who's dying. And he kind of sings the verses and she sings the chorus. But, but he, says her, uh, he says to her, don't talk about the end. Don't talk about how everyone dies in the end. And she sings back, she tells him, all my life I thought I was learning how to take, how to bend, not how to break, how to laugh, not how to cry. But she says, really, I've been learning how to die. I think a lot of us are going through our lives and we're figuring out how can I win? How do I get ahead? How do I leverage what I have to get more? We've been figuring out, I've been figuring out, how do I get into a seat of power and privilege? And I'm just telling you, this is not the way of Jesus. He does the opposite. He's trying to figure out how to get lower. He's trying to figure out how to serve. He's trying to figure out, well, you know, but he's, he's, he's becoming the ransom. He is learning to die, not how to live. What do you want? The disciples want the seats of power and privilege. Okay, let's talk about what Bartimaeus wants. Verse 46, they come to Jericho. If you're walking north to south to, Je to Jerusalem, this is the last major stop on Google Maps. It's not the exact spot, but it's about 45 minute drive from Jericho to Jerusalem. Some of you live a Jericho-like distance away from this church right now. Uh, but as Jesus leaves Jericho for sort of his final walk to Jerusalem, this blind beggar Bartimaeus is sitting there. And he learns from the rumblings, the noise of the crowd, uh, that it's Jesus of Nazareth who's passing by. It says a large crowd was following him. And from then on, a number of interesting things happen. First, this beggar, Bartimaeus, begins to cry out for Jesus. But look carefully at the language. First part of verse 47, he learns, who is, who is there? Jesus of Nazareth. But who does he call out for? It's not Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus, son of David. Now, that's the very first time in all the Gospel of Mark this title is used. This is a messianic expression. Bartimaeus believes something about Jesus, that he's this long-promised Messiah from the line of David, the lineage of King David. But how did he know this? <laughs> how, how did he learn this? We, we don't know. But in contrast, if you were here last week, we talked about the rich man. In contrast to the rich young man who called Jesus good, but didn't understand what really what that meant. And in contrast with the disciples who we just spoke about, who have misunderstood the nature of Jesus's ministry and mission. In contrast to both of them, the man who cannot see actually sees Jesus more clearly than any of the sighted people do. Which tells us there's more than one kind of blindness in this story. And there's more than one kind of seeing. Bartimaeus sees Jesus for who he truly is. He calls out to him for help as such. And just like they did with the children last week, again, if you caught that, the crowd, the disciples, they're like, go away, stay away, stop talking, stop yelling. Now, why would they want, not want Bartimaeus to speak to Jesus? Well, perhaps again, with like with the children, they believe it's a waste of time. Jesus is busy. He's on his way to Jerusalem, the big important city. We can't pause for this guy. He can't be bothered with every, every blind man along the way. Additionally, again, with the rich man, just like people understood wealth to be a sign of God's blessing, so oppositely, they would have understood disability to be a sign of God's disfavor or even his cursing. So not only is Bartimaeus viewed as socially insignificant, people would have looked at him and concluded, we already know what God thinks about him. But they were wrong. And what they thought about God was wrong. And what they thought about disability was wrong. Listen, disability was not and is not a sign of God's cursing. 
In another story, people come to Jesus with a blind person and they're like, we're trying to figure out who sinned. Was it the blind person or his parents? As if those are the only, those are the only two options. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's not, neither of them. Blindness is simply blindness. It's just part of a world that doesn't work right. God is not mad at blind people. He's not judging blind people or any other kind of disability. And to our surprise, as what happens with Bartimaeus here, disability actually enables a person to see something about God that sighted people might not. Bartimaeus sees something about Jesus that eluded essentially all of the sighted people in the story. And actually, if you look through Christian history, some very important and profound writing and teaching has come to the church by those who have disabilities, like Joni Erickson and, and others. So the crowd, the disciples, they try to keep Bartimaeus away, but they've misunderstood him. The blind man, he calls it all the louder to Jesus. And Jesus hears or someone tells him or whatever, he invites the man to himself. Look at verse 51. Jesus says to him, it's our question, what do you want me to do for you? Same question as the disciples got. Bartimaeus asks for recovery of his sight. Jesus gives it to him. In all the scriptures and all the miracles that performed, only Jesus heals the blind. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means. If it indicates some sort of difficulty with blindness or if it's just one of those things that just kind of happens, I don't know. You can, you, can, you can ponder that if you want. But I think it's interesting to linger on this healing of a blind man for a moment. Think of what it would have been to be, uh, to be in his shoes. In a culture like his, his only hope, his only existence was begging. There's no government support, no special grants, no, no OC transpo, you know, if you're a disability, we can get you around. He's completely and totally sidelined and marginalized. And spiritually, to have a deformity or disability effectively barred you from different parts of worship. Socially, it would have been difficult, if not impossible, for him to marry and to raise a family. Everything is sort of off limits to him except bare existence and in a moment the, your entire world is reversed. All the possibilities closed, they're now open. Work, family life, religious life, all those are options. But the impulse of Bartimaeus is to what? If you look at the last line, he followed Jesus. Where? To Jerusalem and to the, and to the cross, but he, he follows him. Bartimaeus understood, perhaps even better than before, the healing was granted because of his faith, yes, but the source of the power was Jesus. And think of this healing from the angle of Jesus. This is the last miracle in the Gospel of Mark until the resurrection. Why is that? What's Mark trying to tell us? I mean, Jesus isn't curing all the reasons people go blind in the first place. And this may sound a little bit cynical, but Bartimaeus is one man in one city in all the world. Hundreds and maybe thousands of people were going blind while this Bartimaeus was being healed. So why does it ultimately matter? It's a drop in the proverbial bucket. And yet Jesus heals him anyway. Why? What's going on? Healings are a sign of the kingdom of God. They're a signal. God is on the move. Healing sicknesses, casting out demons, helping the blind to see. Miracles demonstrate a spiritual reality. So why heal a blind man on the way to the cross? And why is this blind man clearly being contrasted with proud disciples and a rich, selfish young man? Because at the cross, what's going to happen is all the blind, all who walk in darkness will be given sight. Spiritual sight is coming to everybody. Just like this hymn sings, we're going to end with it today after, after we're done here in a little bit. Uh, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. 
but now I see. That's what Jesus is on his way to do. He's on his way to serve. He's on his way to give his life as a ransom for many. And upon his death and resurrection, what will be offered? Sight to the blind. See, this micro offer to Bartimaeus will become a macro offer to the whole world. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, he comes to us and says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you want to remain in your blindness or do you want sight? And what's the difference between those two? Faith. Bartimaeus believed he could be healed. He asked for it and Jesus had the power to give it. But if Bartimaeus had not believed and had not asked, well, he would not have received Faith is required when you come to Jesus. He can cure your spiritual blindness, but you have to believe he can do it. And so in one sense, this question to Bartimaeus and to the disciples, it's a once and for all question for us. What do you want from Jesus? It's kind of the ultimate question you have to answer with your life. But in another sense, Jesus is asking this all the time of us. If you belong to Jesus, If you're one of his disciples, one of his people, this question is one you ought to be considering regularly. For instance, Jesus invites us to pray. He says, come to me like little children, tell God what you need, what you want. Our wants are a helpful doorway to prayer. To tell God, this is on my heart and mind. This is, this is what, what's bugging me. Part of trusting Jesus is to come to him and say, yeah, this is what I want you to do for me. That doesn't guarantee a yes. James and John boldly asked and got a no. But Bartimaeus boldly asked and gets a yes. You can let Jesus sort out what's wise, what's good, what's in line with his kingdom. You can just go ahead and ask. And since we're on this topic today, I know that's hard to pray for healing when you or a family member has a disability. That's fair. I understand like the emotional, spiritual anguish difficulty a person, a family might have with that. I'd recommend if you are friends with a disabled person or their family, you, should, you can ask them, how would you like to be prayed for? They're probably gonna need help carrying that burden. They're probably gonna need the faith of others when their own hope and faith has dried up. But I will say this, I think we ought to be warned by the picture of this crowd trying to keep a disabled person away from Jesus. To tell them, be quiet, stop interrupting. You're getting in the way. No, no, no. Jesus came for people who understand they need him. And he stops ministering to a huge giant crowd so he can focus for a minute on the blind man. I think we have to take that very seriously as a church when it comes to those who are disabled in our own midst. But finally, I'm not sure where you see yourselves in this story. Maybe you've identified with the disciples and you've felt that pinch of how you've misunderstood power and privilege. Maybe you identify with the other 10 and you are grumpy at someone else because they have power and they have privilege and you are begrudging someone else who has it. Maybe you feel weak and weary and in need of a touch from the Savior. Maybe you're just part of the crowd staring at both of these groups and not sure exactly where you fit. The good news is Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for all of us. The proud, the popular, right alongside all the neglected and ignored. He came to die for his disciples and for his betrayers. He came to serve one and all. And that's why I can freely invite you. No matter where you're at this morning, no matter how you struggle, no matter how you hurt, no matter how you are believing or disbelieving, you can come to Jesus. He's a big enough savior for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we are grateful that you came not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give your life as a ransom for many. And there are many, many ways that we have misunderstood and misapplied and ignored this teaching. Please humble us. Please help us to see ourselves rightly. Forgive us where we need forgiveness. Encourage us and, 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 and poke us where we need to be encouraged or poked. Help us to walk in line with who you are and who you want us to be. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.